Matthew. And we will be reading uh, from the 28th chapter, which is the last chapter of the book of Matthew. Um, We have been talking about the kingdom, right? Last time we met, we learned that the kingdom, um, that Jesus is the king. And he shows that the kingdom comes not through might or power as we would think it usually, but it comes through the cross. And last time we, we met, we saw that Jesus had died. So today we find ourselves in Matthew 28, verse 1 to verse 7. If you have it, join us, and you could also join us on the screen. The, the text is on the screen if you would like to read it there. And the Bible says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And this is now in verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead. And is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So we have just read an interesting story about the empty tomb. Today we are going to learn about the risen king. You may be seated. So as mentioned before, last Sunday we talked about Jesus dying on our cross. Jesus died on a Friday. And three days later, on a Sunday, Jesus arose. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to the tomb to be near the body of Jesus. But instead, they witnessed the empty tomb. These followers of Jesus, the Marys, we could call them that since there's two Marys, they went to anoint the body of Jesus. We may not be able to relate with this because here in the United States, in the West, we really don't deal with dead bodies. We find that kind of scary and kind of maybe even gross. Uh, but, but back in the day, they, they didn't send, them, send the body to a morgue as we do or to a stranger. No, back in the day, the closest ones of the deceased would go and take care of the body. In this case, the Marys went to take care of the body of their loved one. As they went to the tomb, they wondered who was going to open the tomb since it was sealed by a stone. But it turns out when they arrived, the stone was rolled back. And on the stone sat an angel of the Lord. His appearance, the appearance of this angel was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. They were pure. There's a sense of purity that is taking place here. 
The appearance of the angel caused the guards who were protecting the tomb. And these guards were protecting the tomb because the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees of that time, they feared that somebody like the disciples would come and steal the body of Jesus. So they wanted to make sure that, that these guards would keep the body inside the tomb. The angels appeared to the guards and the guards fainted. What, what a sight. What happened with the guards is a typical response to a divine encounter. This angel tells the Marys, do not be afraid. You are looking for Jesus, but he is not here. He has risen. Come and see the place where he lay. He's not there anymore. Jesus has risen from the dead. This is what the religious chief priests and Pharisees feared. This is why they had guards protect the tomb, to guard the tomb so nobody would steal it. So the tomb wouldn't be emptied. But, as we find out, the tomb was empty. And the tomb was empty not because the disciples stole the body. No, they wouldn't even be able to since the guards were there. No, the reason that the tomb was empty was because God had raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus has risen. According to the angel, this is the message. The message that Jesus has risen, this message is the message the Marys were supposed to preach. The angel asked Mary to follow his example. The angel was, in a sense, one of the first evangelists. And as you could see here in maybe this next chart that could help you out, help maybe visualize this. So here is the angel. Angel proclaimed, Jesus has risen. And then he tells the Marys, you go tell the disciples, which is kind of hard to see with the yellow ink, uh, the yellow light. But the point here is that the angel witnessed the empty tomb. And told the Marys to go witness to the disciples. And then the disciples are supposed to continue. There's a tradition or a habit that is being passed down. And what is it that they're passing down? It is the message that Jesus has resurrected. He said it to Mary. And now Mary had the opportunity to tell others that Jesus has risen. Mary told the disciples and the disciples went to tell the world. They preached this so much because they understood this idea that a New Testament scholar, theologian of the Bible says. His name is Chris Hodge. This is, this is what he says. And he tells us, if Christ did not rise, if he didn't resurrect, the whole scheme, everything that we have read so far about the Bible of redemption is a failure. And all the predictions and anticipations of its glorious results for time and for eternity, for men and for angels of every rank and order are proved to be chimeras. In this case, chimeras means a thing that's hoped for but really impossible. Without the resurrection of Jesus, it would all be a failure. 
everything about peace coming on earth, about order coming on earth, about justice coming on earth, that would all be a failure. Because in reality, if Jesus did not resurrect, death is king. But we know that Jesus did resurrect. Chris Hodge continues to say, But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Therefore, the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation. The kingdom of darkness has been overthrown, Satan has fallen as lightning. From heaven and the triumph of truth over error, of good over evil, of happiness over misery is forever secured. Jesus has defeated death. In Jesus, death died because Jesus has killed death. He defeated the consequences of our sins, of our chaos, of the tohu vavohu since the very beginning. He has defeated it, and therefore we could have shalom. We could have peace. And the proof of all of this is that the tomb is empty. We can go today to the grave of anyone, and we will find their body. But at the grave of Jesus, you won't find a body. Why? Because he has risen. He has resurrected. N.T. Wright, he's also a theologian of the New Testament. And he says this. The resurrection, in short, is presented by the evangelist not as a happy ending after an increasingly sad and gloomy tale, but as the event that demonstrated Jesus' execution really had dealt the death blow to the dark forces that had stood in the way of God's new world, God's kingdom, of powerful, creative, and restorative love arriving on earth as it is in heaven. The resurrection shows us that what Jesus did on the cross actually worked. Jesus has dealt With the dark forces of the world, he did actually take upon himself at that cross the sins of the world. It actually happened, and he actually dealt with it. And now, God's kingdom has arrived. With the resurrection, Jesus has instituted God's kingdom of creative and restorative love. And if you have your fill in the notes, you could write these Uh, creative and restorative love on the earth as in heaven. We just read the Gospel of Matthew. That's what we were reading uh, when we began. But all of the Gospels, remember there are four Gospels, they depict this important event. They depict the resurrection. Um, And each one has a different emphasis. It's kind of hard to see the font because it is a lot of text. But... uh, I'll read it and just listen along. Each, each gospel, each author, they have a different perspective on the resurrection. For Matthew, the resurrection brings Jesus into the position for which he was always destined. That of the world's rightful Lord. Sending out his followers to call the world to follow him and learn his way of being human. For Mark, the moment of the resurrection is when God's kingdom comes at power. 
For Luke, the resurrection is the moment when Israel's Messiah comes into his glory so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins can now be announced to all the world as the way of life. And for John, the resurrection is the launching of the new creation, the new Genesis. The resurrection confirms the story that we have been covering about the kingdom. That God really will bring the kingdom that we saw, the beautiful kingdom that we saw in Genesis. It is really coming. N.T. Wright concludes about the effectiveness of the, of the resurrection and therefore the effectiveness of the cross. And he said this. It is the resurrection that declares that the cross was a victory, not a defeat. It therefore announces that God had indeed become king on earth as in heaven. Not only does the empty tomb provide support that Jesus actually resurrected, but there is also support because Jesus, in bodily form, after his death, spent time with his disciples. Look at what he says and does post-resurrection. If you have your Bible, uh, hopefully you're still in the same chapter in the book of Matthew. Um, We'll be going to verse 16 now of the same chapter. And this is the resurrected Jesus talking to the 11 disciples, his apostles. And he says this. Well, first Matthew writes this and gives us some context. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came, uh, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I, will, I am with you always to the very end of the age. As the resurrected one, as the resurrected king, Jesus spent time with his disciples. He also received worship. And even after he died and resurrected, people doubted. There's always going to be people who doubt. As the resurrected one, Jesus taught with authority. He said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This begs the question, did he have less authority before he resurrected? If, is what Jesus is what are the words of Jesus, the ones that he said before he resurrected, less authoritative than the ones that he's going to say after the resurrection? No. His words before and after the resurrection have the same level of authority. But the idea here is that the spheres of, of which he now lives in, of heaven and earth, now his authority, it encompasses both. He shows through defeating death that he not only has power here on earth, but he also has power in heaven. He shows that his authority is, encompasses both heaven and earth. That is the entire universe. Jesus has now demonstrated that he has authority in heaven and earth. And here we see the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13 to 14. It is a very, it's a passage that we've been referencing often because it is an important passage within the scriptures. 
D.A. Carson, he is also a New Testament theologian, also into Greek. And he says this, The Son of Man, talking about Jesus, once humiliated and suffering, is given universal authority. As the supreme authority of heaven and earth, Jesus says, Therefore, what does the one with supreme authority say? Go and make disciples. There is something we, we miss when we don't read the Greek. So I, I want us to look at it in the Greek. Uh, in the Greek it says, Parathentes on sate, pantata etna baptis on tes autos ais, tel onoma tua patros kai to yoi kai to agil ponomatos. And that's a mouthful, no, a lot. Um, but the point here, and, and there's probably some words that you could recognize, maybe patros, like dad, uh, the father, baptizontes, which is baptizing. Um, and it's hard if you, you haven't dabbled with Greek. And even, even for me, uh, it is hard. But something that we could do so we could maybe understand this better is look at, uh, if you go to the previous slide, you, you could look at the, the, the underlined ones, which are the verbs. Verbs are actions. Um, and the first verb is perothentes, uh, which means go. And the second one is methetiosate, which means make disciples. It's one word, uh, make disciples. In English, it's two. Uh, essentially, we could say disciple making or something, make it into one word. And then the last verb in verse 19 is baptizontes, which means baptize. And I want us to focus on the verb. So if you go to the next slide, you could see, uh, you could notice that there's a difference, right, between all of these verbs, and it is the endings. The endings are different. Um, the first one and the second one, they have same, the same ending, whereas the middle one, uh, disciple-making, it has a different one. Uh, the top one and the bottom one, it has entes, and the second one has sate. And we, we may not understand the significance of this, but if you dabble a little bit with, uh, if you know some Spanish, you know that in Spanish, uh, case endings, the endings are, of words are very important. And also in Greek, uh, the case endings are very important. So if you, I, I, I translated it somewhat into Spanish. If you look at the following um, slide, you could see that the endings of the first of the first one and the last one are the same. Um, and the second one, it is different. Um, and the reason that this is the case is that the endings, they convey different ideas. They're extremely important. Um, go and baptize. Proothantes and baptusnotes. They have the same endings. Uh, and they have the same endings because they are participles. And we, we won't spend too much time studying the participles today. But just for right now, know that our English go is in the same case as baptizing. That means they, they're conveying, they're like in the same tense. That means that the main verb is not go, but mathaiteosate, which means disciple making. And parenthesis, which means go. Uh, and parenthesis and baptizontes, 
are just, they're modifying the main verb disciple making. Maybe this pic uh, could help us see it, the following picture. Um, So, again, the main idea is that these two verbs, they're not the main verbs. They're modifying the main verb. And what is the main verb? It is disciple making. Sometimes we get caught up with going and baptizing. And, And don't get me wrong. Those are important. But Jesus here is emphasizing the disciple-making action. D.A. Carson, Greek, a Greek New Testament professor, he says this. The main emphasis, then, is on the command to make disciples. Evangelism is important. We must go. But let's not forget the focus it's only important to go. But it's only, it's important to go, but it's only important because our end goal is to make disciples. But what does it look like to make disciples? Or what is it even to be a disciple? Here's one definition Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. A disciple hears what Jesus has taught, begins to understand what Jesus said, and starts to practice what he has commanded. Because a person is a disciple of Jesus, the person's life is different. The master is not giving a command that will merely secure nominal adherence. Nominal just means just a name, just an appearance. It's not just nominal adherence to a group, but one that will secure wholehearted commitment to a person. A disciple can't just say he or she follows Jesus and have no change in his or her life. No. If you are a disciple, you wholeheartedly commit yourself to Jesus. You listen to him, understand him, and to follow him. We are to be disciples. And we are to make disciples. We are to wholeheartedly commit ourselves to Jesus. And we are to help people wholeheartedly commit themselves to Jesus. Jesus also said that we are supposed to make disciples from pantata ethna. It is this Greek phrase which means every nation, every people group, every tribe. That means we are not make, we're not supposed to just make disciples from one specific group. No, we are supposed to make disciples from every group without distinction. We should not say, oh, that person, oh, that group over there. They're not going to be discipled. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. He is saying that pantata ethna, from every people group, panta is all, like pantheists who believe that all is God. And ethna is where we get like ethnicity. And from all of these groups, we are supposed to make disciples. And Jesus mentions two characteristics of discipleship, baptism and teaching. Here's another way of looking at it. 
The response of discipleship is baptism and instruction. Baptism should involve both, uh, discipleship should involve both baptism and teaching. And I, I am aware that while we have done well in teaching, we have lacked in baptisms here in Encounter Church. And part of it is that we are still building our, our roots, our foundation, and we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, nevertheless, I want to make it clear that we strive to baptize people, to follow what Jesus has said. And as the church, we will follow what the church has done for centuries. We're not breaking off for what the, the, the church has done. According to Leon Morris, the church has always had baptism, and we are going to continue to baptize. We, we have no knowledge of a time when the church was without baptism or unsure of baptism. It is difficult to explain this apart from a definite command of Jesus. The church, since the, its inception, understood that they are supposed to baptize people, and we understand that as well. And as a church, we will follow the command of Jesus, as the church has followed over the ages. We will baptize into, it, 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 people will be making allegiances to God. They are declaring their faith. And it's interesting that within this passage, uh, yes, it, it says in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, but yet... These three appear to be one because there's simply just one name. And we will obey what Jesus says here. We will baptize according to what he said. We will follow the mandate, the commands that he said, baptizing in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and following the example, the model that the disciples made, baptizing in the name of Jesus. The main idea behind this is making allegiance, declaring, that's what it means, declaring in front of everyone that you have decided to follow Jesus. That is the main idea behind it, that you're making allegiance to God, that you're showing loyalty to God, that you are entering into a beautiful relationship with God. And as a, ter- and as a church, we will teach. This type of teaching is not just for cerebral knowledge. No, it's not just to make us smarter sinners. No, we teach so that we will be changed, so that we will obey the commands of Jesus. Disciples teach Jesus so people would follow Jesus. And whether we are hearing or teaching, our goal is to follow Jesus. D.A. Carson wrote, what the disciples teach is not mere dogma steeped in abstract abstract theorizing, but content to be obeyed. It's not just to make us feel good, make us cry, make us more knowledgeable. No, we teach so we could obey Jesus. We can go into church, have a great experience, but there needs to be change. D.A. Carson concluded on these words of our king. Failure to disciple, baptize, and teach the peoples of the world is already itself one of the failures of our own discipleship. We must do these things. We must make disciples go. We must baptize. We must teach. 
We must. As disciples, we must. Christianity grows because Christians disciple. If we fail to disciple, to baptize, to teach, we have failed to spread the kingdom. And to a degree, if we fail to disciple others, we have failed to be disciples ourselves. All this could look hard. Making disciples, evangelizing, baptizing, teaching, it could look hard. But now imagine how hard it looked for the early Christians in pagan Rome. But look at how Jesus ended his teaching. Our king shares that he will be with us until the end of time. D.A. Carson said, the gospel of Matthew ends not with command, but with the promise of Jesus' comforting presence. It does look hard. Discipling in the middle of a pandemic looks hard. Making, uh, baptizing people, it does look hard. Teaching looks hard. Making disciples with a generation that couldn't care less about what the church has to say, it does look hard. But be comforted. We will build the kingdom. We will follow our king's command. We will spread his rule. We will make disciples. We will baptize and we will teach about our Lord and we will be successful. Why? Because behold, Jesus, the risen one, the risen king is with us always until the end of the age. And I do want to conclude by reading the book of Acts. I have about two passages that I want to read, and it's not going to take as long, but I want to look at the last words of Jesus. If you could go with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. And it says this, if you don't have it on your phone, you could look at it in the screen, but again, it is Acts 1, 6 through 9. And I, we have read this before in the church, so again, I won't be spending too much time um, with it because we have covered it Uh, like maybe the second previous service that we had for Encounter Church. But this is Jesus, the risen Lord, and he's talking to his disciples. But the disciples were the ones who first asked, asked him a question. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. This was one of our first teachings. And as I said, so I won't spend too much time. But if you want to look at it again, feel free to check it out online. Um, But again, there's always more that we could say about a specific verse, especially when we're looking at at a verse through the theme of the kingdom. Jesus had just reminded the apostles about the promise of the Holy Spirit. So logically, they, they asked if this is when the kingdom would be fully established. 
But Jesus said that it's not for us to know. It's not for us to know. We should not anxiously calculate when the fullness of the kingdom will come. No, we, we shouldn't do that. Instead, we should follow what Jesus tells us. It's not for us to know, but instead we're supposed to receive the Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. Instead of trying to calculate when Jesus is returning, we're supposed to receive the Spirit and be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Basically, we are to be witnesses everywhere. We will witness the Spirit with the Spirit of God. We do not know when the kingdom is culminating, when it will fully be here. But we can start witnessing about our king. We can start spreading the reign of the king and consequently build his kingdom here on earth. And we will do this by the power of the spirit. Patrick Schreiner said, The kingdom will now advance by the authority of the exalted king, by the power of the spirit and through his gospel. Jesus ascended into heaven. And a few days, this is what happened. Acts 2.4 says this. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The apostles received the Spirit. And you know what they did when they received the Spirit? They began to witness, just as Jesus had said. In Jerusalem, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, Peter got up and began to preach. Acts 2, 29 to 34 says this. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died. Remember David, King David? He was the promised, he, he received the promise about a son who would be king. He had died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So here we see what? We see Peter with the spirit witnessing about Jesus. They used the psalm. Here Peter used the psalm to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne and whose kingdom will never cease. The apostles were witnesses that Jesus resurrected and that he was exalted to be at the right hand of, of, of God at a place of power. Then they talk about he, how he received the promise of the Holy Spirit and has now poured it, the Spirit out to his disciples. And I wanted to conclude with how Peter concluded his witness. Acts 2, 
38 to 41 says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Because Jesus is the Messiah, and because the audience of Peter had sinned, Peter's audience were supposed to repent. I. Howard Marshall, he is a scholar of the New Testament. He, uh, He studied the book of Acts extensively. And this is how he defines repentance. This is what he says that repentance is. The word indicates a change of direction in a person's life rather than simply a mental change of attitude or a feeling of remorse. It signifies a turning away from a sinful and godless way of life. Have you decided to turn away from a sinful and godless way of life? Peter tells his audience that they should. Then he said that you should be baptized in Jesus' name. This is what I, Howard Marshall, said after much study on the topic, why it's important to be baptized unto Jesus in the name of Jesus. Baptism was performed in the name of Jesus, a phrase which may represent a commercial usage to account to the account of Jesus or a Jewish idiom, with reference to Jesus. However precisely this phrase be understood, it conveys the thought that the person being baptized enters into allegiance. Just like you would give allegiance to a country, to a king, here when you're baptized, you're giving allegiance to Jesus. And this would tie in with the evidence that at baptism, It was customary to make a confession of Jesus as Lord. Usually back in the day, early on in church history, when they would be baptized, some of the Christians, they would confess their faith that Jesus is Lord. And what they were doing at baptism, they were declaring that he is my king and I will serve him. Today we have seen that Jesus is king and death cannot keep him down. We see his last words, make disciples. We see the Holy Spirit empowering the disciples to build the kingdom. Things that are key in making disciples and building the kingdom is baptizing people and having people repent. If you haven't done so already, if you haven't repented of your sins, put your trust in Jesus or been baptized, I encourage you to do so. If you want to talk to somebody about it, feel free to talk to any leader, anybody, myself, or anybody within the church. I do believe that the body of Christ, the church, is here to help you with your journey. We're all here to help each other. And uh, just, we have this role that our King has given us. And I pray that throughout this week, we may see 
how we can teach the teachings of Jesus. Right there where we're at as the worship team comes up, let us pray as we get ready to go into worship. Father, we, we, we know that you are real. We know that Jesus has risen. We know, Father, that you are king. And we pray, Lord, that we may be witnesses. Just as there are witnesses who go into a court and say that this happened, that we may go to this world, at our workplaces, our schools, that we may go, and that we will say, Jesus is king, that you have risen. May we make disciples. Let us emphasize that. And yes, we will go, because you want us to. We're not making that any less. No, that's important. But let us not forget the importance of making followers of you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for everyone here. Maybe they're struggling to be a disciple themselves. But I pray that they may take steps today. Start reading your word. Start learning more about you. Maybe they repent of their sins and Maybe they desire to be baptized so they make a public declaration that you are king and that they will serve you and you alone, Jesus. I pray that all of us may worship you throughout this week, that as we sing this song, as we close, Lord, that you may be glorified as king. We pray this in your name. Amen.